Peter 5-7 reads, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. God's Word is filled with verses to bring comfort in uncertain times. He always does His part, but we have to as well. Hi, I'm Rob West. That's especially true in times of economic uncertainty. We can't stand idly by when there are things we should do to prepare. Financial teacher and author Ron Blue is here to talk about that today. Then it's on to your calls at 800-525-7000. You can call it 24-7, 800-525-7000. This is MoneyWise Live, biblical wisdom for your financial peace of mind. Well, our guest, Ron Blue, is co-founder of Kingdom Advisors, and he's often called the father of Christian financial planning. Ron, great to have you back on the program. Uh, Rob, as always, it's a privilege for me, so thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, A lot of folks, Ron, might not know this, but you're heavily involved in training the financial professionals who become certified kingdom advisors, CKAs, that we talk about here often on the program. And as a part of that, you've developed a series of video talks called Transferable Concepts that uh, you don't need to be a professional to understand and benefit from. So perhaps you can begin today by telling us just what exactly is a transferable concept. Well, you know, I do a lot of speaking, and one of the things that I try to do in speaking is present the material in such a way that it's memorable, it's in a nutshell, yeah. uh, that people can get their hands around. It's something that they can repeat uh, and live by, so it's highly transferable. For example, I might say giving breaks the power of money. That's a transferable mm. concept. Uh, it's a truth that will never change. Uh, and easily repeatable and easy to remember. And there are many, many transferable concepts in the financial, in God's Word relative to finances. Well, we're going to deal with one of those today, and it involves economic uncertainty, which the last time I checked is still going on. So, uh, Ron, what do we need to know about economic uncertainty? Well, Rob, one of the advantages of being my age, and I'm in my 80th year, so I've lived through eight decades, And often when I have spoken, I've gone back and reviewed my life over those eight decades in 10-year increments. And what I found is that at at every increment, uh, there was economic uncertainty. I was born in World War II. There was a lot of economic uncertainty. And uh, turned 70 right after uh, 2008 when we had the market crash and uh, turned... uh, 60 right after 9-11. So there's, there's always economic uncertainty. And I, that's another transferable concept, and that is that uh, economic uncertainty is certain. Mm. So what are the key principles that should drive our thinking and behavior during economic uncertainty? Well, I had a, an experience yesterday, uh, Rob, where I was talking to a lady who is, uh, she was 66 years old, nearing retirement. And she had been a widow for 10 years, and she wanted to know if she was doing okay. And I said, well, tell me about your situation. And she said that when her husband died, she didn't know what to do except to to live within her income. She knew she couldn't overspend. She began saving. She began putting money into her retirement plan. She ended up over time educating herself, uh, and she bought a a rental home. And... uh, that was providing about $1,250 a month of income. She was going to retire in four years at age 70. And she said, how am I doing? 
And I said, well, you're living within your income. You have no debt. You were giving. She had told me that, giving generously. Uh, and I said, you have savings, so you've got liquidity. And I said, by the way, what's the value of that rental home? And she said, about 650000 And oh, I said, wow. do you know that you're probably in the top 1% of Americans? And yes. all she had done was follow just a few basic money management principles that come out of God's Word, and she's ended up exactly where God would intend her to, and that is financially secure. Mm, that is powerful because it really illustrates this idea that there's God's part and our part, and we need to be found faithful with what passes through our hands. And as you point out, Ron, biblical principles are simple. We just need to follow them over a long, long time. Ron, always a joy to have you with us, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ron Blue has been our guest today. He's the author of many books on biblical financial principles, and you can find them wherever you buy your books. Your calls are next, 800-525-7000. This is MoneyWise Live, biblical wisdom for your financial peace of mind. to have you along with us today on MoneyWise Live. I'm your host, Rob West. This is the program where we apply God's truth to your financial decisions and choices, help you navigate your role as a steward of God's resources. We do that with the Bible as our guide, 2,350 verses that deal with money and possessions. We mine those scriptures, apply the principles we see from God's Word to what you're dealing with today. Whether it's saving or investing, perhaps it's giving or debt repayment, whatever's on your mind, we'd love to hear from you. We do have some lines open. Here's the number, 800-525-7000. That's 800 800- Five two five seven thousand. You know, we started today by talking about economic uncertainty. Our good friend Ron Blue reminded us that economic uncertainty is certain. <laughs> we can count on it. And uh, as we do that, we recognize that, you know, we have, uh, have to recognize the difference between what we can control and what we can't control. Uh, you know, as we go through life, there's God's part and our part, and I think that applies to, uh, you know, the economic uncertainty around us as well. You know, we can't control the U.S. gross domestic product or the stock market or the tax code or the interest rates, but what we can control is what passes through our hands. Are we being found faithful with what God has entrusted to us, however little or however much? Beginning with the idea that we recognize it all belongs to Him and we're stewards, that we should give careful attention to how we manage his resources, and uh, that we should look to God's Word for those instructions. You know, I think we can boil effective godly money management down to really five simple ideas, and we can build on these at least. One is we should spend less than we earn. Uh, Number two, we should avoid the use of debt to the best of our ability and over time move toward being debt-free. Thirdly, we should have some margin or liquidity in our lives, meaning we're living on less, and therefore that surplus is allowing us to accomplish our goals, thinking beyond the today toward the future. Uh, So spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, have some margin or liquidity. Number four, set long-term goals. 
because when we have a longer perspective, we're going to make a better decision today. And then five would be to give generously because giving breaks the power of money. When we give, it requires us to hold what God has given us loosely. And I believe it calibrates our hearts to his. If we apply those five simple ideas, whether we're acting on behalf of a nation or just your individual finances, I believe it puts you in a position to experience God's best. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to be, uh, you know, where you're in a surplus situation. You will have difficult and desperate times. We, through this journey, uh, the Christian life, we will uh, see different seasons, but we trust in the Lord. We live with contentment for what he's provided right now. And if we find ourselves in real need, we have to rely on the others around us, the body of Christ, to step in and provide some assistance along the way. You know, that's, I think, the big idea. And what's neat about it is that it's incredibly practical and relevant to our lives today. All right, let's get to the phones. Here's the number, 800-525-7000. Joanne is in Chicago listening to WMBI. Joanne, how can I help you? Hi there. So I am uh, 59 and a half. So my kingdom advisor had called and said I could transfer monies from my 401k over to them so that they could, I guess, take care of that money better than maybe what's happening with my 401k. But then somebody told me every time they move that money, you're going to keep getting hit with fees. So if you do move that money, you need to let them know that they shouldn't trade with anything that's going to have fees. But I feel like the reason I'm going to them is because I should trust in that they're going to do whatever's best. Even if there's fees, they have to make money for what they do, and I shouldn't be concerned about it. Yes. Well, I would agree with your thoughts there in the latter half of that question. Uh, you know, the, the process of selling out of uh, the investments that you hold in your 401k should not generate any fees. You're paying an embedded management fee uh, inside those mutual funds that were made available in that 401k and liquidating those positions to go to cash so that it could be then rolled out to an IRA uh, shouldn't really generate much in the way of additional cost. Now, one once it's redeployed on the other side uh, in, a, in another environment with the custodian of that kingdom advisor, um, then, you know, the fees associated with how that advisor manages money would then come into play. Um, as a client, I would want to know how they get paid, but it's probably uh, through a percentage of the assets under management. Uh, that's charged to take discretion and and make the decisions with your goals and objectives in mind. Uh, And it could be if they're using mutual funds, it could be a a management fee that's built into the fund, uh, or it could be just a straight uh, percentage that's applied. There may be some transaction costs, but yeah, you're right. I mean, whatever is being charged, obviously the returns uh, have to warrant that fee that you're paying. And, you know, they realize that they need to provide the returns on a net basis beyond what they're charging uh, so that you see an appropriate rate of return. And the good news is that after you've spent a lifetime amassing this wealth, you're now entrusting it into the care of a professional money manager who can give careful attention without emotion to the investments that are selected. And I think that's a great place to be. The primary reason, Joanne, that they're probably recommending that you get it out of the 401k is because you can do that without tax consequence, and you're opening up the investment universe as soon as you do that. You know, keep in mind in a 401k, you're limited to just those few investment selections made available to you 
through the 401k that keeps it simple. But as soon as it gets to an individual retirement account managed by an advisor, now any stock bond, mutual fund, exchange traded fund, bond, you name it, is now available, which obviously allows them to tailor the portfolio a little more finely uh, to the needs, goals, and objectives that you have. So um, I don't think you're making a, a poor decision at all. And to the extent you, there are pieces of this that you don't understand, I wouldn't hesitate to ask lots of questions about uh, both how they're getting compensated as well as the strategy they're going to uh, deploy on your behalf. Does that all make sense, though? It does. And I'm still working, so I'm still going to be contributing into 401k, but I'm just moving a big lump sum over. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's fine. And obviously, um, you know, as a part of this, you'll probably want to make sure that they give just a once over to the investments you're selecting inside the 401k. They wouldn't have direct management oversight, but could advise you to the extent you're looking for that on which investments to select. And then, You'll continue to fund that portfolio at some point when you separate from the company. You'll probably roll the balance of it out into that individual retirement account, close the 401k, and then, uh, you know, the management will continue. All right. That helps. Thank you so much. Okay, Joanne. Lord bless you, and thank you for calling today. Uh, On to Indianapolis. Uh, Mitchell, how can I help you? Hi. Um, So, um, yeah, my name is uh, Mitchell, and I am a college student getting my first credit card actually and i'm just looking into that i'm actually not 21 yet so i know that there are a lot of uh limitations on how you can apply for credit um i i have received income recently uh, but my main question is is there a distinct advantage of getting a credit card from the bank where with which you have like a checking or savings account you know there's really not any necessary benefit uh, to staying with your bank um, you know, I think okay. the first thing, Mitchell, as you're starting out, I love that you're asking this question, is I want to make sure, you know, you're living on a budget, that you have a clear plan for how you're taking the money that you've saved and what you're earning by working, and you have a plan for how you're going to spend that and control the flow of money. I think the key is that when we introduce credit cards into the mix without that spending plan, uh, you know, it gives you the potential to take that credit that's available to you and say, well, I think I'm going to do this or that that's perhaps beyond what I have right now, but I'll pay that back next month. And then you kind of get into the cycle of, you know, building up debt. They'll keep increasing the credit limit as long as you're paying the minimum payment. And before too long, now you're stuck in this cycle of credit card debt paying high interest. I don't want that. But if you can handle it responsibly and only use it for budgeted items and pay it off in full uh, at the end of every month, it will do you a great service in that you'll begin to establish credit showing a responsible uh, repayment history that will then uh, increase your credit score. So when you're ready to get that first apartment or someday buy a house or a car, if you do need to seek some credit that fits well within your budget, you'll be able to do that because you've established some credit. As to where to go, I think the primary thing is I'd be with a top-tier bank. So the type of credit that you have and who you do business with is important. I would want to make sure you don't have any annual fees. Uh, That's really going to be key. Um, but apart from that, um, you know, it doesn't really matter which one of those top banks and lending institutions you go with. A couple of websites you could check out would be nerdwallet.com uh, or creditcards.com to evaluate the various uh, credit cards that are out there, see which ones don't have those annual fees. And to the extent you're looking for some rewards, maybe cash back, you can compare those as well. So be careful. 
establish your budget, and uh, then proceed cautiously. Mitchell, thanks for uh, calling today. We're glad you're thinking about these things as a college student. Hey, more Money Wise, just around the corner, 800-525-7000. I'm Rob West. Stay with us. Thanks for joining us today on Money Wise Live, biblical wisdom for your financial decisions and goals. We've got some lines open today. We'd love to hear from you. 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. You know, we were talking in the last segment about uh, having a financial advisor manage your assets or resources. Often we talk here about the Certified Kingdom Advisor designation. If you'd like to find an advisor who's met high standards in training and ethics and integrity and competency, who's also been especially trained to bring biblically wise financial advice to bear. Uh, You can find a CKA in your local area. Just head to our website, moneywiselive.org, and click Find a CKA. You can search by city, state, or zip code. I would interview two or three if you're looking for a financial advisor and you want to align your values, and then uh, pick the one that's the best for you. We're going to head back to the phones today. Judy is in Springfield, Missouri. Judy, how can I help you? Hi, thank you for uh, taking my call. Sure. Um, we are um, in a in a position right now that we are wondering. My husband is fixing to retire this year, a few months, in fact. He has an IRA from a previous job. We also have each two other simple IRAs that we're considering. Should we roll those over at this point into a Roth IRA? We understand we could, it could cost us about 12% to do that. It might take some recovery time. I don't know um, if that'd be the wise thing to do at this point at retirement. Yeah. What do you have uh, in the combined IRAs, the SEPs and the SIMPLES? Roughly, what do you think you have? Um, the the uh, three separate accounts, probably just around or under 30000 Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, so this money would be added to your taxable income for the year that you make the conversion. So the question is really going to come down to, um, would you benefit by paying today's tax rates uh, for this money and then having it grow tax-free from here during retirement? Or would you be better off just to leave it where it is on a tax-deferred basis and then when you take it down the road, you'd pay future tax rates. Now, the consideration, number one, is while you're still, your husband is still working, arguably your taxes are a bit higher because uh, you know his uh, income that he's earning, obviously, which is taxable, is kind of the, the base. And then you'd be adding incremental income on top of that. Um, and so arguably, you could be paying some more now. What we don't know, though, is what's going to happen with tax rates. I would imagine they're not going any lower than they are now, and they're probably heading higher, depending on what happens politically in the future. Um, but in the retirement season of life, you have less uh, taxable income because he's not working, you're not working. And so, uh, you know, arguably you'd be in a lower bracket, even if the overall rate structure was higher. Uh, the other kind of disadvantage of doing this now, Judy, is that, uh, you know, the real benefit of the Roth is to have lots of compounding years. So this money, you know, can grow over time on a tax-free basis. But as you enter retirement, you're going to get a bit more conservative typically in your investment strategy. So there'd be less returns that you'd enjoy 
that tax-free growth on. Um, so, you know, unless there's a real compelling reason that you have, uh, you know, to move it to the Roth, like you want to miss out on the required minimum distribution down the road and just leave it in the accounts, which you can with the Roth, I don't know that there's enough reason while he's still working to go ahead and realize that additional income just because I think you will end up paying a bit more in the way of tax. But uh, tell me your thoughts and if there was a specific reason you were wanting to do this that I didn't mention. Well, he does retire in two months, so this will be our last year for contributions. Um, We we understand we might possibly cost us about 12% if we were to move it which would take some time to recover. Uh, But if we look at maybe five years to recover, but not really gain till after that, right now we're fine for the next, you know, five, 10 years as far as not having to touch that for five years. Um, We don't want to get in trouble by taking it out at some point and having too, too many taxes at that point. We are debt-free at this point. Uh, we own our home. We own our vehicles. Um, okay. Yeah, and we here's the, the key. Account that we can fall back on. Sure. You know, the key, though, is that you're going to pay the tax at some point. So the question is, do you want to take it, pay the tax now when you convert it to the Roth, or do you want to wait and pay the tax later when you pull it out of a tax-deferred account like the SEP or the Simple? Uh, But in either case, you're going to pay the tax. The question is, are you going to be in a higher tax bracket now or later, and will the tax rates be higher now or later? So I don't see enough compelling reason to make this conversion, especially in the year that your husband is still working, and obviously this year he is. So I'd probably check with your CPA uh, just to run an analysis on that. And if you really want to get it into the Roth for the tax-free growth, I'd probably at least wait until uh, 2021 because he will no longer be working. Um, But uh, ask that question and and see what your CPA says. And if you want to do it next year, I think you could certainly proceed. We appreciate your call, Judy. More to come on MoneyWise Live just around the corner. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us today for Money Wise Live. Delighted to have you along with us. We've got some phone lines open. Here's the number, two, in fact, 800-525-7000. Right back to the phones in Chicago, Illinois, is Sharon listening to WMBI. Hi, Sharon. How can I help? Hi, um, I have a question. Uh, I Years back, I opened up a 529 account for my granddaughter, and yeah. I just had them to take the funds out of my checking account. Okay. Uh, this is uh, after taxes. And this year, we are starting to use the funds. So I want to know, do we still have to uh, report that on my uh, taxes? Uh, yeah, what what happens is uh, the 529 plans, when they're used to pay for qualified educational expenses, there's no, uh, you know, taxable uh, with, uh, withdrawal uh, to report on your federal income tax return. Um, however, the plan administrator, whoever is the custodian for the account, would issue uh, a tax form 1099-Q and 1098-T, and basically they'll list the amount of the distribution and how much was used to pay for those qualified expenses. Um, it's up to you if you're the plan owner. And uh, is that the case? Are you listed as the account owner? 
Uh, yes, I am. Okay. And then it would be up to you based on those forms that you would get to calculate the taxable portion, if any. Uh, but if there, again, if it was all used for qualified educational expenses, then uh, there is no tax to report. And um, you would be, uh, you know, you'd have the documentation, but uh, there would be no tax due. So I think that's the key as to, you know, how these funds are being used. And then you'll receive those forms from the plan administrator. Um, do you do your own taxes or do you use a tax preparer? Yeah, I prepare my own taxes. Okay, very good. So you'll just know that at tax time, uh, based on the year the distributions occur, you'll get one of those two forms, and they will list uh, those distributions and how they were used. Do you know if they're, uh, the funds are being used solely for qualified educational expenses? Uh, yes, they are. We just made the first payment, you know, uh, yesterday. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, and it went directly to the university. Okay, great. All right. So if that's the case, then uh, there won't be any tax due uh, for tuitions, fees, you know, other uh, related expenses for an eligible student, um, you know, at a a university institution. So you should be just fine. And, uh, you know, you won't have to think about the tax portion of this. Uh, because that's the uh, the benefit of it. Um, so grateful uh, that you've done this for your grandkids. I know that was a huge blessing, and uh, it sounds like uh, it's being put to good use. So, Sharon, we appreciate your call today. Uh, WMBW, Rome, Georgia. Hi, Don. How can I help? Hey, yes. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a small IRA that I was uh, having in a money market, but then there was a seminar in town couple of years ago, that was credible. I researched it and made sure that it was credible. It had a track record. And uh, it's not an annuity, but it's a German insurance company, a pretty big one, that allowed you to put your money into it, and you were able to get the gains of the market up to 6%. You were able to pick at least six different markets, mm-hmm. uh, but they capped it at 6%, but you would never lose any money if the market dipped down. You right. may have heard of those previously. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so, and I have to take my uh, my regular distribution every month because I'm I'm, you know, seventy three. So, but but I was wondering, um, the markets gained quite a bit here. I, I at one point I had it in a Vanguard fund that uh, mimicked the S and P, which I look back. Of course, hindsight's a hundred percent. And there were big gains there for a while in the S&P, but I missed out on all those because I was afraid we were going to lose a whole lot. And I took it out, put it in the money market. So my question is, I was wondering whether or not, you know, it would be good to take it out. There is a penalty, though, and uh, put it back in the market rather than just try to inch along at those, you know, few percentage points that I'm getting now, even though it's kind of safe. But I just wasn't sure. Yeah, you know, there's a number of dynamics at play here. Number one would be, obviously, any tax consequences. Number two would be any surrender charges. And then three, just the uh, overall returns and the commensurate risk associated with that. I mean, right now you have a base under you where you can't lose money. The downside is, uh, you know, you're giving up some of the upside potential (laughs) of uh, what you could make by being in, you know, something that um, is perhaps a little bit more growth-oriented, you know, tied to 
to U.S. investments, although I think international will perform pretty well in the, in the next uh, couple of years. Um, but being able to capture 100% of that upside, which you're not uh, you know, in this product, and that's one of the ways that they can give you the protection on the downside, uh, I think is key. So it, it's not something I could tell you definitively to do or not to do because of those variables. So I think you need to start by just understanding, number one, are you willing to take a little bit more risk for the potential of a greater return by getting out from under this product, which kind of provides that floor? And and then secondly, what are those surrender charges? What are the tax consequences? And then uh, I think make your decision. But if you've not been happy with the returns, I think clearly uh, the move to bring it back and redeploy it, uh, you know, into a, a more traditional investment strategy and, and the risk, you know, take on the risk associated with that is fine. Uh, just know, you know, what you're getting into in terms of the, the charges and the taxes. Um, but I think directionally, I like that idea. I would just get some counsel uh, before you make that decision. And Don, we appreciate your call today. On to Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, Anita, thank you for your call. How can I help? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I love the program and really appreciate what you do. Thank um, you. I heard last week something that you had said, and someone was talking to me, so I just got bits and pieces. Um, I'm 62 and considering early retirement, and um, I wasn't sure two things, how much I could earn and still um, not be penalized the dollar for every $2 I make. But yes. the, and I heard you say 18000 something, but I didn't know if the specific to the caller or if that's mm-hmm. in general, but the other one that was really, that really caught my attention, I thought you had said that based on like whatever my average um, wages or salary is for the last year, that yes. that can replace 15 years of what I've earned, like on my, on my social security statement out of all mm-hmm. the 30 years or whatever I've worked that the 15 highest years that that average wage could replace those. Did I hear that correctly or? Yeah, uh, you're, um, you're close. So let me, let me break it down for you. So until you reach full retirement age, um, and you'd have to look at your benefit statement to see when it is for you, uh, probably 66 or 67. Social Security will subtract from your benefit check if you exceed uh, a certain amount of earned income for the year. For 2021, it happens to be 18960 so nearly 19000 So anything over that, uh, they're going to reduce your benefits $1 for every $2 you earn over the limit. Now, you'll be reimbursed for that reduction later after full retirement age, but uh, you will take that reduction in the near term. Once you reach full retirement age, there's no limit on the amount of money that um, you can earn and still receive your full benefits. And to the second part of your question, your benefits are based on your highest 35 years of earnings, not 15, 35 And so your later earnings years, where arguably you're making more than maybe some of the early 35 years, those will replace the lower earnings years, which would allow you to earn a bit more because your average of the 35 years is higher. So you actually do yourself a benefit by continuing to work. And again, any reduction will be reimbursed to you down the road. So I hope that helps, Anita. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your kind remarks. Thanks for calling today. More Money Wise Live just ahead. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Moneywise Live. So glad you're here with us. In just a moment, we'll go back to the phones. But first, it's Monday, which means our good friend Bob Dahl stops by. Bob is Chief Investment Officer at Crossmark Global Investments, where investments and values intersect. You can learn more at crossmarkglobal.com. And Bob, the bulls are out. Uh, the headline I saw is S&P 500 doubles from its pandemic bottom. Fastest bull market rally since World War II. Is that right? Yes. Uh, if you've been in since the COVID low, you've doubled your money. It's hard <laughs> to believe there are, 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 aren't periods in history where we can say you double your money and uh, call it 18 months. It's, it's been absolutely amazing, uh, as the economic recovery has been as well. Yeah. And uh, more uh, records today. I think we hit, uh, what, another record high for the Dow and the S&P? Yeah, the Dow and the S&P up, but the Nasdaq down, if I were to, you know, yeah. throw cold water on this, you know, it's it's inches its way. You know, one one day it's one average that goes yeah. up, the other day it's the other average. You know, tomorrow Nasdaq might be up and the Dow down. Um, we, we're, we, we've been kind of sideways with a modest up bias for the averages, but the average stock actually peaked in June. And since then, it's been uh, meandering lower. So the market's breadth, the advanced decline line, however you want to look at it, is not as healthy as the overall picture looks. Yeah. Well, Bob, I know you're always looking at both, uh, well, the macro perspective and then obviously at the individual stock level. Uh, From a macro perspective, what are the things that are most interesting to you uh, as you evaluate the market and the economy this week? So, so the Delta variant, uh, more and more yeah. companies are talking about it. We're getting more and more delayed returns to the office, and that's not great for the economy. You're starting to see economists take their third quarter GDP estimates down somewhat to still healthy numbers. That's the positive point. The other, and we've talked about this, about this many times on Mondays, Rob, is is inflation. Yeah. Um, producer price index came out last week since we last talked it was up 1% for the month of July, ahead wow. of the 06 expected. So we've got this inflation that is uh, uh, problematic. And, you know, one of our headlines for our weekly commentary was, has, in, has inflation peaked? And we answer the question, probably not. Right. It might come <laughs> off some, but we're going to be stuck in this somewhat higher range, which uh, markets are not paying a whole lot of attention to. Fixed yes. income uh, rates, as you know, 10-year treasuries, they still 125-ish, and the P.E. ratio on the stock market still near near high, high levels. Um, so maybe inflation is peaking. I'd like to yeah. be wrong on my assessment that it's not peaking, but that's when we've got to watch very carefully. Well, and it clearly, if we thought it was transitory because we were waiting for uh, supply chains to open up and pent-up demand to be satisfied, going back to your first point, which is some companies delaying returns to the office due to the Delta variant, that may extend some of these supply chain constraints, huh? Absolutely right, which which aggravates the length of time where we're going to be stuck with a higher inflation rate than we're comfortable yeah. with. Yeah. But the longer it stays, Rob, the more places it creeps into. For example, wages. Uh, wage rates have moved up year over year to a 4% level. Y- you can't turn around and make it 2 tomorrow morning. 
You know, yeah. these things are are, are, are are sticky. So I think we've got a Fed that's got its hands full as to when to begin the tapering process. That is the begin to decline the amount of first fixed income they're buying every month. And eventually, uh, you know, a year, 18 months from now, begin to raise interest rates. OK, uh, Bob, your conclusion today, just as you summarize where you where you see us right now. Yeah, um, I'll I'll start with there is no alternative to equities, the TINA argument. Cash, (laughs) a very low return. Bonds, not very interesting. And so people back into, I guess I'll own some stocks. Um, I I hope that holds because we'll we'll shake the trees when we have some sort of pullback. But uh, we we think that uh, with the economy and earnings as good as they are, it's hard to see big downside in the market. Sloppiness, for sure. Big up, big big downside, unlike and big upside, unlikely. More of a trading range. You got to know what you own. Yeah, excellent. And uh, hire a professional to do it would be my perspective. Bob, always appreciate you stopping by, folks. Check out uh, uh, Bob Dahl's Dahl's deliberations at CrossmarkGlobal.com, where investments and values intersect. And I rely on that commentary, both in uh, written form as well as here on the program weekly. And you should too, Bob. Great to have you, my friend. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. All right. Look forward to it. Back to the phones today. Evanston, Illinois. Colleen, thank you for your patience. How can I help you? Yes. Good afternoon. Uh, my mind, excuse me, <laughs> my 95-year-old mom has had a long-term care insurance policy in place for decades. Mm-hmm. And the premium keeps going up. It's now 900 a quarter. And Every time I pay it, I handle her finances, I wince. And is there a point at which it doesn't make sense to continue uh, paying so much for long-term care for an individual who's in their mid-90s? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, and I can understand the concern. You know, she's obviously had this for a long, long time because a 75-year-old female applicant would pay about $7,200 a year for $162,000 worth of coverage. And, uh, you know, she's 95 and paying 3500 So uh, those premiums are extremely low for her age. And yet, if she doesn't need it, she doesn't need it. I think the question would be, you know, would she at some point, because the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, a nursing home facility in a private room nationally is going to run on average about $8,800 a month. Um, you know, assisted living 4300 I mean, so those numbers can add up. And I guess the question is, you know, what does she have in the way of assets to cover that if she were to need that kind of care for, let's say, you know, two to three years, which would be typical, uh, or does she have enough to cover that? And therefore, you could drop this policy and just continue to boost her savings. So I guess that would be the key. Uh, you know, I'd tend to opt more toward just hanging with it because, you know, it's pretty reasonable given how long you've been with it and you lose all of that benefit that you've been paying for all these years as soon as you drop it. Um, and I would also want to know kind of what she has in the way of assets if she needs that type of care, which, again, could be very costly. So tell me about that side of it, Colleen. Well, she has about uh, 400000 in investments, mm-hmm. okay. and she gets Social Security, my dad's Social Security. Uh, up until a year and a half ago, when we had to employ a full-time 24-7 caregiver, 
in order to keep her in her home, which was her desire, uh, she was basically living entirely off Social Security and dividends. So we mm-hmm. never had to draw down from her investments. Okay. Um, that's not changed since we have a 24-7 caregiver in, in home. Uh, she has no other debt. Uh, her condo's paid off. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm wondering with that amount of assets and given her age, yeah. it's it's just a hard one. Yes. Well, it's really just kind of, you know, do you want the peace of mind to know that, you know, for that $300 a month, if she were to need some care that, you know, went well beyond where she was now because it wasn't just medically feasible for her to stay in her home and she needed, you know, more intense nursing home care, that there would be something that could step in and offset that. And I think given the assets that she has, it seems like a, you know, a pretty reasonable amount to give you that added peace of mind uh, that that would be covered. So I'd probably tend to stick with it. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, you make a, a good case for, you know, why she could depend upon her assets. She's made it, you know, to age 95. And to this point, she's not needed that kind of assistance. And when she has with 24-7 care, you've been able to cover it just out of her current cash flow. So uh, I think it really just comes down to a peace of mind issue, whether, you know, that extra expense per month is worth uh, not having to wonder whether, you know, a more costly care would be out of reach or erode her assets entirely. So I think you could go either way. I'd pray through it uh, before you make that decision. Uh, if it were me, uh, Colleen, I'd probably stick with it. We appreciate your call today very much. To Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Mike, thank you for calling, listening to WMBW. How can I help? Hey, Mr. West. Um, I've got a retirement question. Um, I will turn 66 in October this year. I'm planning on starting to receive my Social Security in January. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I've got a couple of loans, uh, one on a car and one uh, that I had to take for a medical procedure. Um, and I don't I have very little in savings. I'm not in a 401K or anything like that. Uh, I, I'm wondering, would it be better to put the Social Security money, just put it in the bank? Uh, I'm going to continue to work uh, probably till the day I die. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I, I hope that I can maybe like semi-retire in about a year. Okay. Um, but would it be best to put the money toward the loans and pay off the loans or just yeah. put the money in the bank? Yeah. Um, I'd probably focus on paying off the loans. You can absolutely take it at 66. Your full retirement age may be a bit more than that. So um, I would, if possible, and it sounds like you have this ability, delay the application for those benefits until you reach full retirement age. But once you do take that money, uh, you can continue to work with no benefit reduction after full retirement age. And then you could take that money and start applying it to the loan so that you can uh, get rid of those before you have to stop working, be completely debt-free, which will give you a lot of flexibility and a peace of mind. So appreciate your call today, Mike. All the best to you in this exciting next chapter of your life as you seek what God has for you. Thanks for calling. Well, that's going to do it for us today on Money Wise Live, where we apply biblical wisdom to your financial decisions. I want to say thank you to my team today, uh, Dan Anderson, Amy Rios, Jim Henry, Gabby T. And also training today is... 
uh, our good friend Melody Mansurova. We're so glad she was along answering phones today. Thank you for being here. MoneyWise Live is a partnership between Moody Radio and MoneyWise Media. Come back and join us tomorrow. God bless you.